Supercomputers keep getting faster. Just a few years ago, it took teraflops or trillions of floating point operations per second to make the list of the world's fastest computers. Now it takes exaflops, quintillions of operations per second. And now the Oak Ridge National Laboratory has switched on a machine that makes 1.1 exaflops of performance. It's called Frontier. Joining me with more, Oak Ridge Distinguished Scientist and Frontier Project Officer Scott Atchley. Mr. Atchley, good to have you on. Good morning, Tom. I appreciate you having me on. And just review for us how this super, supercomputer, I guess it's 59th on the 500 fastest in the world, how it supports Oak Ridge, what types of projects at Oak Ridge will this support? And maybe it's networked into some of the other labs too, I imagine. Yeah, so Oak Ridge has a leadership computing facility. So this is one of two facilities within the Department of Energy that focus on what we call leadership computing. Leadership computing uses a large fraction of these large machines to run problems, to solve problems at a scale that you just can't run anywhere else. So the users that come to Oak Ridge and to Argonne have problems that require large resources, so maybe a large amount of memory, definitely fast networks. They're trying to improve the resolution of their simulation and modeling, or as we're seeing more and more using machine learning or deep learning that's part of artificial intelligence. And they just need more resources that they can get anywhere else in the world. And this machine is physically large, correct? How big is it in terms of square footage? Yeah, it's about 400 meters square, about the size of a basketball court, a little bit bigger than a basketball court. It is similar in size to our previous machines, but just much, much faster. And did contractors build this? Is it something that you designed at Oak Ridge? Or how does that work? How does it come to be? So with these large systems within the Department of Energy, we have a rigorous procurement process and we'll put out uh, requests for proposals and we'll get proposals from multiple vendors. We'll do a technical review. We then award one of those vendors the contract and they will then start working on the machine. Now, we tend to buy these multiple years in advance. So we started deploying Frontier last year pretty much September, October timeframe is when the hardware came in. We actually selected the vendor Cray back in 2018. And so that was to give them time. They had proposed new processors from AMD and they gave them time to work out all of that technology. And also gave us time to prepare the machine room. So we had to add more power, we had to bring in more power, we had to bring in more cooling. The floor in there would have collapsed with this new machine because it's so heavy. So we actually had to tear out the old floor and build a new raised floor for Frontier to handle the weight. Frontier is made up of 74 cabinets. Each one of these cabinets is four foot by six foot, a little bit smaller than a pickup truck bed, but weighs as much as two F-150 pickups in that space. So it's very, very dense. Got it. And did the chip shortage and the worldwide supply chain affect the delivery and ability to build this on time at all? Oh, absolutely. We were in the preparation stage, and I went to visit the factory in May of last year. And we kept asking them, are you having any supply chain issues? And they said, well, some, but not too bad. And when I got up there, they pulled me into a room and said, yeah, we're having some issues here's 150 parts we can't get. And you know, you're dealing with a system that has millions of parts, millions of types of parts, not just a million parts total. And you only need to be short of one. And it doesn't have to be an expensive processor. It can be a $2 power chip or a 50 cent screw. Any one of those will stop you from getting your system. And so, yeah, it was a huge issue. Fortunately, 
HPE had bought Cray uh, in the interim from when we awarded the contract to when they were building the system. And HPE had very good supply chains. They were able to reach out to many, many different companies to try to source components. Uh, they pulled off a heroic job of getting us the stuff. It did delay us. Uh, it probably delayed us about two months. But at that meeting in May, they told us they could delay us up to six months. So that's how good of a job they did for us. So we really appreciate the effort that they did. We're speaking with Scott Atchley. He's Distinguished Scientist and Supercomputer Frontier Project Officer at the Oak Ridge National Laboratory. The processor chips, the AMDs, those are still manufactured in the United States, correct? And the memory is what is made overseas? Uh, It's a little bit of both. So they're designed in the U.S., but the leading computer fabrication facility, or we just call it FAB, is located in Taiwan. That's TSMC. The other leading fabs are Samsung in South Korea and then Intel in the U.S. And so Intel is starting to talk about doing fab services for other companies. But up until this point, they've only manufactured their own hardware. So whether it's NVIDIA or AMD, you know, all the leading edge processors other than Intel go to TSMC. But interestingly, even right now, Intel is using TSMC for some of their components for the Aurora system at Argonne. Right. So that's why we're going to vote pretty soon to to subsidize them all. We definitely want the capability to fab these in the U.S. for various reasons, you know, geopolitical reasons. And we also want that workforce in the U.S. So absolutely. And I think people may not realize that the chip itself represents a gigantic supply chain of equipment, gases, materials that enable the fabrication of it. And so, you know, there's a couple of billion dollars worth of investment just to make one wafer, I guess, and people may not realize how deeply this goes into the economy. Oh, absolutely. It's a huge amount, and there's ripple effects. If you can bring the fabs to the U.S., and we have some here, but bring more, and particularly the leading edge fabs to the U.S., the the ripple effects would be fantastic. And in planning the installation of a machine like this, what about the programs, the applications, the programming that has to go? Is there some long-term planning that people that want to use it eventually also have to do so that their code will run the way they hope it will? Absolutely. So as soon as we select the vendor, we set up a what we call a center of excellence. And that is a team of scientists and developers from the lab, but also with the vendor integrators, so in this case, HPE, and then their component supplier, AMD. And so we have selected you know, 12 or 14 applications that we want them to start working on. Because what you want to do, I mean, these machines are very expensive. When you turn that machine on, you want to be able to do science on day one. And so they start working on these applications and porting them to the new architecture. And then as the previous generation chips become available, they start running on those. And then when the early silicon becomes available for the final architecture, they start running there and they start their final tuning and optimizing. This process starts as soon as we select that vendor. And so it's not necessarily the case that a given set of code for a application or a simulation or a visualization will necessarily run optimally on the faster hardware. You need to tweak your software to get the most out of the new hardware. Absolutely. So even if you're buying from the same vendor, when we move from Titan to Summit, which is our current production system, they both used NVIDIA GPUs. So the API didn't change a whole lot, but the architecture of the GPUs changed quite a bit. And so you still have to adjust for the different ratios of memory capacity and memory bandwidth to the amount of processing power. And so that is a good part of the process is doing that optimization and tuning for that given architecture. 
That's an interesting point about supercomputers. It's much more like the beginning of computing in the sense that you need to write carefully to the hardware as opposed to most business computing today where you're just writing to an API and you figure pretty much for most business applications, even AI, that the hardware is fast enough for whatever translation layers in between actually do talk to the hardware. Absolutely. We're trying to eke out as much performance as we can, and the applications aren't running. Uh, you know, we don't use virtualization and all these other techniques that you can use to increase the usefulness of your hardware. We have a high demand. There's a competitive process to get access to the machine, and you get an allocation of time. And so you want to make sure that time is as useful as possible. You know, think of it as a telescope and you're a scientist studying the stars. You want to be prepared when your week comes up and you get to go to that telescope and it's yours for that week. You don't want to waste your time by being inefficient, which you do. So the same thing here, the users don't have to physically be present, but they have to be able to remotely log into our system. When they're on the machine, they want it to be as efficient as possible and get as much of that performance as they can. And what are the power requirements for a machine like this? Do you have to call up the Tennessee Valley Authority and say, hey, we're going to turn it on? That's a great question. So when we were doing some of our benchmark runs to help shake the system out, you know, you're running uh, various applications. But the one that we use the most is the HPL or high-performance Limpack application. That's the one that's used to rank the systems on the top 500 list, but it's a fantastic tool to help you, you know, debug the machine and find the marginal hardware and replace it with better hardware. And so I was watching the power as our teams were submitting jobs using the whole machine. And you would see a spike from the baseline power to the maximum power, which was a 15 megawatt increase in five seconds. And, you know, the job would run a little bit and you'd have a node crash, it would die and they'd do it again. And so over and over, we were throwing 15 megawatts on the machine and then it would, you know, finish or crash and then that would go away instantaneously. And I'm thinking, we're going to get that phone call from TVA and it's not going to be a good one. And it didn't come. And I actually know somebody that works at TVA and I, I just called them up. And I said, hey, by the way, we're doing this. Is this causing you guys any problems? He said, well, I don't know. Let me let me check with headquarters. Calls me back a couple hours later and just laughs. He says, no, we didn't see a thing. I said, if you can't see 15 megawatts coming and going in, in five seconds, you've got a lot of capacity. He says, yeah, we average about 24 gigawatts at any particular time. So, yeah, that's less than 1%. So to us, it's huge. Uh, but fortunately, we don't cause the lights to flicker here or anywhere else nearby. So uh, it's all good. So plenty of juice left over for dog patch, you know, down there. Absolutely. The of Tennessee. We're not going to slow down anybody's Fortnite game for sure. And just briefly, what is your job like day to day? Do you touch the machine and interact with it personally? Or are you just kind of more like looking at spreadsheets and power reports and, and schedules? Uh, so unfortunately, I attend meetings. That seems to be my major contribution to the Department of Energy. The machine is still undergoing standup. And so we probably have you know a couple months to go, uh, maybe a little bit longer, as we test the system and make sure that it's ready to put users on. And so I'm not part of that team. I'm tracking what they do daily. So some of the meetings I attend are with our acceptance team, also with the vendor to make sure that we are addressing the issues that we are discovering so that we can get it ready for users. After the machine goes into production, I don't really need to get on it. It's really at that point dedicated to the users. We were actually starting to think about its replacement. And so we actually have a mission need statement into DOE that talks about, you know, we'll need a machine after Frontier 
you know, five years from now. And we were actually starting the process of thinking about the procurement of that machine. And so our expectation is that we'll put out a request for proposals sometime next year. And by the end of next year, we'll know what the architecture is that will replace Frontier. But we're still a few years from zettabyte computers. We have to get multiple exabytes at this point, correct? It's becoming more difficult, right? So in uh, three machines ago, uh, so back in 2008 timeframe, we were right at the petabyte uh, level, so you know, roughly two petabytes. Uh, our next system, Titan, uh, was deployed in about 2012. That was on the order of 20 petabytes. Uh, in 2017 or 2018, we deployed Summit, which was uh, it's 200 petabytes, and that's still in production and will stay in production for a couple more years. And so roughly an order of magnitude every five years, but that is becoming more difficult. You hear stories about the, the slowing of Moore's Law. You'll hear people say the end of Moore's Law, and that's that's a little too pessimistic right now, but it is slowing. So it may take us a little bit longer to get those uh, powers of 10. So we are definitely a few years away from both looking at Zetaflops. Scott Atchley is Distinguished Scientist and Supercomputer Frontier Project Officer at the Oak Ridge National Laboratory. Thanks so much for joining me. Tom, thank you very much. It was a pleasure, and uh, have a good day. And happy computing. We'll post this interview and a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Keep up to speed with the Federal Drive. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader? And what about them inspired you? You I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League play- baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had wadded tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, Uh, whether you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was, I think, my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. 
I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, admit, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style and, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared you know, about making sure that, that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult, young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards, two different administrations. You founded your own company, Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and, and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a Social Security Administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. It's, that's That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the Social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office. And lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi historical to current, uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just 
stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I, I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. Some people were made to follow the instructions. We were made to make our own. To always measure twice and never cut corners. Unless, of course, we've got a compound miter saw. Northern Tool and Equipment is a problem solver's paradise. There's nothing we can't find, fix, or figure out together. We're made for this. Start solving your projects today at northerntool.com. Cough and cold season is here. Introducing Ricola Max Throat Care, Ricola's most powerful drop yet. It's the best of Swiss nature wrapped around a powerful liquid menthol center for maximum relief from your worst cough and sore throat. Maximum nature for maximum relief. Try the new Ricola Max now, available in the cold and cough aisle. It's in our nature.